How about now? Can you hear me now? Do I need to say all that again? I'm pretty loud. I'm not as loud as Brochet, but I'm pretty loud. So my name is Jim Whittle. If I haven't met you, my wife Sherry's sitting right there. We've been married 38 years. We have five kids and seven grandkids. I tell my kids I want 20 grandkids, and when I tell them that, they always laugh uh, because they have no intention of doing that. I work for Equipping Leaders International. I'm the India director. And uh, I love the songs we just sang this morning. Just a reminder of how good God's grace is. So that I can say, nobody needs the gospel more than me. Amen? That's the confession of every believer. Whether you're a brand new believer or you've been following the Lord your whole life, nobody needs the gospel more than me. And I can also say this, on no day do I need the gospel more than today. Today is a fresh day, and I need the gospel as much today as I did yesterday. Because that's what we stand on. That's where all the power for living comes from, is from the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you know that over 100,000 people a day are coming to faith in Christ around the world? 100,000 people a day and about 20% of that's happening in India. So for you math geeks out there, if 100,000 people a day are coming to faith every day, how many new churches do we need to plant? Well, if there were 100 people in the church, you would need 1,000 new churches planted every day, which is 30,000 new churches every month. Uh, imagine the leaders that we need to develop and train, not only here in your church, but around the world. And the problem is, is that 90% of the world's pastors and church planters have had less than one hour of theological education. So imagine the, the, the great need around the world, not only for pastors and planters, but for training. And so that's where Equipping Leaders uh, International comes in. We are a non-residential uh, ministry. We're not young. We don't... Uh, we don't go and live abroad and, and try to spend 10 years learning the culture and plant one church. Instead, what we do, we're a gray-headed movement. Uh, that's why I keep inviting David and Mark to go with me. And, and, uh, and we go over and spend two to four weeks overseas in Africa and Asia and South America, and then we come home and play with our grandchildren. It's really uh, the best job that I've ever had. And so in India... Uh, this next year, well, this last year, we, we did about 36 training events, our India team, and we trained about eight to 900 uh, leaders directly face-to-face, -face, and those leaders then train others, so they're responsible for somewhere between 25,000 and 40,000 uh, leaders in churches. It's hard to keep up with the numbers in India. They're staggering. And that's somewhere between a million and a half and two million believers that your church is impacting by sending us to India. And so you pray, maybe Mark will go with me someday. I'm in Philippians chapter 1 and uh, verse 12. We just have a couple verses this morning to consider in the gospel, but they're so rich uh, that all we could accomplish is three verses. Philippians 1 verse 12 Hear the word of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. 
And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And thus ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. Now, maybe you've heard the story of the farmer out somewhere around Star, South Carolina, you know, the farmer out there who's, uh, who's looking at his farm through critical eyes. He has a, a, a few acres, a hundred probably, and, and, and everywhere he looks, he sees something wrong, something decaying, something that needs maintenance. So he decides after all these years, it's time to just sell and, and move somewhere else. So he hires a realtor, who comes out to look at the farm and, and prepare an ad for Zillow so he can get it up online and, and, and sell it. But before uploading, the, the realtor calls the farmer and says, I, I want to read the ad to you to make sure you like it, see if this meets with your approval. So, so he reads the ad that goes like this. A, a beautiful farm, a, a great location, a well-maintained house, sturdy barns, lush pasture lands, a, a beautiful pond filled with fish, fertile soil, and a great view. And the farmer listens carefully, and then he says, read, read that to me again more slowly. And he says, a, a, a beautiful farm, a great location, a well-maintained house, sturdy barns, lush pasture land, a beautiful pond filled with fish, fertile soil, and a great view. And so the, the, the farmer listens again, and he finally responds, don't put that ad in the, in the Zillow. I've always wanted to live in a place like that. I think I'll just stay right here. You know, as we live, we're constantly assessing our, our, our situation. We're making evalu evaluations and judgments and decisions about our lives based on what seems best, on, on what we can see. And, and they're based on the values that we believe and the things that we're committed to. And especially as we experience disappointments and suffering and struggles and, and roadblocks and obstacles in life, the question is, how do we respond with faith? How do we respond biblically and faithfully to the, those issues that, that strike at the heart of our comfort and, and the very culture uh, of comfort? And, and, and some respond by saying, why do bad things happen to good people? And, and then there's others that say, I, I'm a sinner. I, I deserve all the bad things that I get. Well, just like the farmer, how we answer these questions is all about perspective. And beloved, we want to have a biblical perspective, and the Apostle Paul certainly did. And so I want to share with you three things that I saw in our passage, three things about the gospel that I would like for you to see. And those three things are gospel circumstances, gospel expansion, and gospel encouragement. The first is gospel circumstances. Now, I don't know about you, but I love being around new Christians, especially those folks who have run from Christ for a long time and have now been found. They're, they're, they're really rough around the edges because they have a lot of life, but, and their life is, is messy, but they have infectious joy. They're just happy to know Jesus after all this time. And, and, and 
Also, I, I love hanging around with religious folks who've been in the church most of their life, and after years of striving somewhere in, in, a, in a moralistic church and, and trying to get better and, and not being able to do it, they finally found grace. And, and they're just learning to rest in the gospel of grace and, and, and stand on the righteousness of Christ alone and, and not worrying about being judged anymore. It, it's really, it's like watching kids whose every day is Christmas. They, they have such joy because the gospel is so good. We well, see Philippians is called the epistle of joy, the letter of joy. And what makes this letter glorious is that Paul wrote about joy while he was suffering. It's incredible, really, because those brand new Christians that we just talked about, those people who are new to the gospel of grace, the truth is, is that their life is just around the corner from their first obstacles to joy. Because you don't have to be a, a Christian too long before you run into struggle. Often that struggle is internal. You're, you're disappointed with yourself. And so, sometimes that struggle is with your family and friends who think you're a little bit crazy for your newfound zeal in Christ or, become, or because you've become a Presbyterian and, and finally come home after all these years. Uh, other times that, that struggle comes from within the church. You know, if you're in the church for very long, somebody's bound to hurt your feelings or step on your toes or does something you don't think is right because a church is a group of, it's a sinner's club, really. Or it could even be your circumstances. Maybe you've struggled with a job or, or money or cars or, or kids. Or maybe you have grown kids. Nothing's more stressful than having grown kids because you've got no leverage or, or, or it could be your health. Whatever's happening, it just looks like roadblocks are everywhere. And so the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians because, while he's under house arrest in Rome, and, and he was there for two years. And this loving church in Philippi, who, who was one of his supporters, was concerned about his welfare. And so they had sent the note or sent somebody to check on him, and he wrote this letter back to assure him that he was all right. And so as the letter begins, he's given thanks for them and he has prayed for them. So now in verse 12 that we just read, he turns to the problems that he faces, problems that they're aware of and that they're concerned for. And what we see here is that Paul saw all of his obstacles, all of his struggle, all of his pain through one lens. Those things were all there to advance the gospel in his life and in other people's lives. Now, is that how you see your life, beloved? Is that how you see your struggles? That all your struggles are actually there to bring fame to the name of Jesus and to grow you up in grace? Because on no day do you need the gospel more than you need it today. Is that how you see it? Because you see, that's what we're really talking about when, when, when we mention the sovereignty of God. What, what most Presbyterians get wrapped into, up into in the sovereignty of God is thinking about the doctrinal question of election, which comes first, re regeneration or faith. But the real issue, the heart of the issue of the sovereignty of God is whether our life in Christ has any purpose. And, and do our negative circumstances have meaning? 
And when, when Jesus offers us the abundant life, does it include suffering and obstacles, or has he simply strep, stepped off, the, off his throne for a few days or months or, or even years? So consider the life of Paul for just a moment. Paul was under house arrest in Rome. Before that, he spent two years in prison in Caesarea. And, and these are not nice places. And, and it all started when Paul went back to Jerusalem in Acts 21. And, and he was falsely accused of law-breaking. He was nearly lynched by a religious mob. He ended up in a Ro Roman prison. And although he was in the right and was being treated unjustly, he, he couldn't even get a hearing to change things. He was insulted. He was maliciously slandered. He, he was kept in prison simply so the ruler could gain favor with the people. He, he was kept in prison for a long time, hoping that he and his friends would offer a large bribe. And then on his way from Caesarea to Rome, after he appealed to Caesar and got to go to Rome, on the way he was shipwrecked and his life hung in balance in the sea. And when he finally got to Rome, it's not with fanfare and trumpets. He arrived instead with the condemned and bound in chains. He spent two years there under house arrest, constantly chained to a Roman guard, a member of the elite palace. He slept with those men he even used the bathroom with those men. He was, he was never alone. Never. Now, what was his crime? What was his sin? Faithfulness to the gospel. <clears throat> Why did he go to Jerusalem in the first place? Paul went because the Holy Spirit sent him to advance the gospel. And what's incredible to me is that he knew he was going into the lion's den and he did it willingly all the way on that trip back from um, Greece all the way to Jerusalem. Everywhere he went, the prophets would tell him that he had trouble coming. And instead of turning around, he went and he kept going. And the Lord was preparing him. He even told his Ephesian friends that he would never see them again. So the question this text asks is, beloved, are you like the farmer looking with disappointment at all your failures and your hurts and struggles and wondering why God has let you down? Or are you like the real estate agent who's seeing lust pastures and ample barns that God has built in your life through struggle? Back in 2010, I'd been at the church in, in uh, the western burbs of Atlanta where Sherry and I live in Douglasville. We'd been there about nine years. And, you know, pastors come in a nine and ten year cycle. Um, and sometimes you get tired. And I, I was tired of the ministry of the life of that church. And Sherry and I were talking about what to do, praying, whether we should move on. And all of a sudden, on the list, you know there's a list, right? If you go to the PCA website online, you can see the list of vacant pulpits. Every pastor on their bad days knows where that list is. And, the, and they go and they look. And so Sherry said, go look at the list. And so I went on the list. And there was a church in a place where she would like to live. And so she says, I want you to look at that church. And I said, Really, you think? Is it time to go? And she says, just look. And so I sent my resume in. I made it through a couple hurdles. 
And then I got a flush letter in the mail. You know what a flush letter is, right? They flush your name out of the system, and they're not interested in you anymore. And so I got that letter, and I read it, and with some disappointment, Sherry was super disappointed because she wanted to live there near family. And, uh, and so life moves on. We re-engage. And about six months later, we heard word that at that church, what had happened over the next six months is not only did they have a pastor, but their, their youth pastor had been found guilty of molesting children in the nursery. That, that's so horrid. And that had already happened to me as a pastor. The church I'd pastored in Atlanta, two years after I got there, I found out that the previous youth pastor had been molesting teenagers. And you hear this all too frequently. What I want you to see is, is that what looked like a roadblock in a flush letter was really a letter of great joy. We were rejoicing in our household that we hadn't had to go through that a second time. Because if I'd gotten that job, it would have been the second time. And it killed our youth ministry in Atlanta, and it would have killed it again in this place. So sometimes what looks like a roadblock is actually a sign that would say bridge out ahead. And the Lord, through struggles and obstacles, is keeping you from deep pain and sorrow. So after all that Paul has been through, here's what he says. What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And unless you think he's just selling, he gives two solid examples in our text of how that's so. One outside the church and one inside. The first is outside the church. That's my second point, gospel expansion. Look again at verse 13 if you're following along. Verse 13 says, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So Paul's under house arrest in Rome. His chains are somewhat longer than modern handcuffs. They're about 18 inches, half a meter. One end is on his wrist and the other is on the wrist of the guard. It made escape and privacy, in, in India we say privacy, it made escape and privacy impossible. He was chained night and day, and yet he was allowed to live in private quarters for two years. And, and I'm sure the rotation of guards included several dozen soldiers over those two years. And when Paul first arrived in Rome, he called for the leaders of the synagogue to come and discuss the gospel with them. The guards were there. And over his time in prison, he had several helpers, Timothy and Epaphroditus, just to name a couple. Their job was to bring him books, but mostly to bring him regular audiences so that he could teach and preach the gospel. Meanwhile, the guards were there. The guards saw everything and they heard every word. And over time, they would have known the facts of the gospel as well as anybody else. They would have heard the scriptures repeated again and again from the Old Testament that point to Christ. They would have heard of the resurrection. They would have known that Paul was falsely accused and in chains for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In addition, they would have been attracted by his great love for the lost and his mission for the gospel and his compassion for the sheep. And they would have experienced 
firsthand his graciousness and his patience and his wisdom and his deep convictions and his genuineness and his humility. And they would have seen his perseverance and affliction and his deep love for Christ. And they would have also known of his great love for them. And they would have heard him pray. Can you imagine? They would have listened to him pray. They would have heard him pray for the Philippians for abounding love. And they would have heard him pray for the Ephesians that they might know the, the deep love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for the Thessalonians that they might persevere in the faith under great oppression. I imagine that many of them came to faith and then they prayed with him and for him. And they would have learned the gospel and been discipled right there. And they would have become leaders in the church. And their cups would have overflowed into the lives of all those who were working in the palace guard. And they would have discussed it with their wives and their companions and co-workers and with all those living in the palace itself. And they would have talked about this strange little man named Paul who talks about a savior named Jesus who has risen from the dead. And many came to faith. It says so right in our text. And at the end of Philippians, it says that many in the palace came to faith. Imagine the influence on the empire because Paul was in chains in the palace. It would be like a modern-day Paul being under house arrest near the White House, and his guards are all secret service, and the rotating guards would hear the gospel and talk about it among their friends and their companions and co-workers, and many would be saved, and the talk would go around the White House, and perhaps even the president and his cabinet would hear Christ. Imagine such a thing. Imagine the large influence one person committed to the gospel would have. This is why Solomon says in Proverbs 16, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. That, that's what Paul is talking about. His imprisonment in Rome gave him access to people he could never have discussed the gospel with. It expanded the gospel in a way that it would never have been possible without this trial. So the question, beloved, is who is it that the Lord has placed you near, which gives you unique access to discuss the gospel and the goodness of grace? Who is it that you work with? Who is it that you live near, that God has placed you sovereignly and providentially near in order to bring the glory of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to them? In India, one of the groups we're working with is Serve India Ministries. The leader is Ebenezer Samuel. He's a couple of years older than me. Um, I think that means he's Mark's age. And, uh, and, 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 he, uh, and he's a great leader. He's worked for Trans World Radio. He was the general director of Gospel for Asia. And, and about... Uh, in 2006, I think it was, the Lord gave him a vision for planting 100,000 churches in 100,000 villages. Imagine vision like that. And here's the strategy. They get existing pastors together in training pods of 20 that are all geographical. The first time I heard this in 2014, I thought to myself, he's planted a Presbyterian denomination. He doesn't even know it. 20 pastors in a geographical region who get together once a month for training. And they offer them free training, and actually they pay them a little bit for travel and, and expenses to come to this free training 
for five years. And the commitment in those five years is to do evangelism in five surrounding villages from their own and to raise up ten leaders who would plant five churches in five years. Now that's vision. And they haven't done very well. They've only accomplished, on average, about three churches in five years instead of five. That's horrible, isn't it? They've trained 8,000 people, and they're working right now in 40,000 villages because of the vision of one man who realized what could be accomplished in the church. All right, I want you to take out your bulletin and a pen. Really, please do it. This is homework right now. I promise I won't make the sermon longer because we do this. I want you to write down the names of five non-family members on your bulletin that you want to reach with the gospel and you're going to pray for in 2020 for divine appointments to share your faith or to take someone with you who can share the faith. Right now, quickly, I know there's some on your heart. Write down the names of five families that you want to pray for this year. Now, you're all looking at me. You need to be looking at your paper and writing down five names. I'm going to give you a minute. It may only give you time for two or three names. You may not even thought about this. But in the same way that Ebenezer Samuel has a vision for five villages for each pastor, each church, I want to give you the vision to reach five families. Imagine what would happen in this church and in this city if you only reached three of those, like Ebenezer has. And this church turned into a thousand people in a year because you reached each three people for Christ. You got those names? They're written down? I'm going to pray for you. Father, I pray for this congregation, for New Covenant, for its leadership, for the folks here, that you would show them the five families that you want each family to reach with the gospel to pray for, to seek to spend time with, to be bold enough to share the gospel. Would you do that in this place, in this city, in this town, through this church this year? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Now, Paul reminds me of another great... Take, take that list home and put it on the mirror in your bathroom so that you can pray for those people every morning when you take a shower. And if you're one of those people that only bathes every other day. That's okay. You can, you can pray every other day. That'll be all right. So Paul reminds me of another great preacher who spent time in jail, and there, there have been a lot. There's many in India. His name is John Bunyan. Have you heard of him? He, he was a popular and powerful preacher in England in the 1600s, and, and like the Jews in Jerusalem who hated Paul and had him arrested in Acts 21, so the, the leaders of the Church of England hated Bunyan and had him arrested in order to silence him because he, he wasn't um, in line with the Episcopate. And so the irony is, is that now he has a larger audience because he'd been sneaking around from small church of 20 or 30 people to small church from village to village, and now he's in the prison. I mean, he's got nothing to lose. He's in jail. And so now he preaches boldly to his fellow prisoners on Sunday morning. And what happened is hundreds of the citizens of Bedford, England, and the surrounding area would come to the jail to hear him preach on Sunday morning and teach the gospel. And they would simply stand outside the jail and listen. And so 
the response of the, of the authorities was he was warned and cajoled and punished and brought before tribunals in order to stop him. They even offered him his liberty if he would cease preaching and go back to being a blacksmith. He was a smithy. And his response was, if you let me out today, I will preach the gospel again tomorrow. It's kind of what the Apostle Paul said, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. And so Bunyan was committed in the same way to the word of Christ. And so Bunyan was silenced verbally, and they put him in the deepest places of the jail, in the dungeons, and there he had time to think and read and write, and all he had with him was his Bible and the book, Fox's Book of Martyrs. Those are great companions if you're stuck away for a time. And he was in jail for 12 years. He was allowed to write, and so he had paper and, and pen, and he wrote many pamphlets and books, and the most famous is Pilgrim's Progress. How many of you have read that? A lot of you, maybe most of you. M millions have read that book and come to faith. Millions more have read it and been cheered by the grace of the gospel. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon read that book every year as an encouragement of grace. And you see, beloved, our adversary stalks about like a roaring lion, seeking whomever he can devour, but he has no power over you, none. God is at work perfecting each of us for his service and his glory, and even our trials and struggles are measured out by God to bring fame to the name of Jesus. Even the tri trials of Job advance the gospel. So how many more people heard the preaching of John Bunyan because of his 12 years in prison than would have heard him in his little church? Countless millions. You see what God does. It's amazing, beloved. So the third thing is gospel encouragement. That's on the inside. Look again at verse 14. He says, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Isn't that incredible? They were more bold because Paul's in jail. You would think it'd be just the opposite, but they were made more bold because they found out what you could lose. A Christian in the Roman Empire in the days of the apostles, they, they faced a lot of obstacles and persecution either from the Jews or the Romans or from both. It, it, it's similar to my friends in India where currently Modi is the prime minister since 2014. We have a radical Hindu nationalist government. I, I think he hates Muslims more than Christians, but he hates both. And, and uh, they have an organization of brown shirts called the RSS. And a couple years ago, the president of the RSS said that by 2020, we want to have no Christians or Muslims in our country. Well, there's 120 million Muslims already, and the Hindus are afraid to go into those enclaves as it is. And then there's somewhere between 70 and 100 million Christians. And, you know, we're praying for 500 million by 2050 that the Lord would do that work. So, you know, the, the, the reigning emotion is often fear. You can feel it, fear of persecution, fear of being shut out from the marketplace, fear for their family, fear of arrest, fear of death. It, it sounds strange, but Paul's boldness and courage in the face of death, in the midst of his chains, his courage gave courage to others because courage is infectious. And, and courage is not the lack of fear. Only crazy people are never afraid. Courage is being faithful even though you are afraid. And everybody's afraid. 
Paul knew that his chains were for Christ, that the suffering of Christians advances the gospel, and he knew the church needed encouragement in the midst of a trial. His chains encouraged me, beloved. His chains encouraged my friends in India. The worst thing that can happen to you is that you die, and then you'll be with Jesus, right? In heavenly places, to live as Christ, to die is gain. Paul's boldness gave courage to the brothers. And Paul wrote four books of the Bible while he was in chains, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And, 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 and some of his great illustrations that give us courage are based on the soldiers that he saw every day. I love the passage in Ephesians 6 talking about the armor of God. Turn with me to 2 Timothy, if you would, chapter 2. I want to read a few verses from here. Verse 8, Paul wrote, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. That's amazing. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. You know, Paul knew that as an apostle, everything that happened to him was for the good of the church and for the sake of the gospel. But he also knew that he wasn't alone in that privilege. He knew that everything that happens to any of God's children serves the sovereign advancement of God's kingdom and our sanctification. And so he invites us to join in that perspective and that hope. He invited Timothy to suffer along with him. And he invites us, beloved, and here's what he says. Listen to this great promise from 2 Corinthians 1. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that we ourselves have received from God. That is the gospel. That's gospel advancement. When you comfort somebody who's been in the same trouble as you, you're advancing the gospel. You don't have to go on a mission trip to advance the gospel. All you have to do is profess the name of Christ in the midst of suffering. And then he goes on, For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. What an incredible promise to us. The, the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives so that his comfort will overflow into the lives of others. That's his promise of gospel ministry. That's the advancement of the gospel. Even your struggles have a purpose. That's incredible news. But here's the bad news. The bad news is, is that if you constantly question the obstacles and hardships in your life, if you see every roadblock as a barrier to your plans, and every struggle as a threat to your happiness, well, then you're going to live in discouragement and fear. And struggle will breed struggle. That's how it works. And for some people, that hardship 
will, will lead to the practical denial of God's grace, giving up on him, giving up on God altogether, and, and that's bad. Because Paul says if you deny him, God will deny you if you deny Christ. But there is good news, beloved. It is an incredible good news. Jesus says, I make all things new. Paul says, if we are faithless, then God is still faithful. Isn't that amazing grace? That even if we are faithless, then God is still faithful. Even though I'm churning with doubts and questioning his goodness and wondering about his love, he doesn't let go of me. Like a parent holding a two-year-old. You know, the two-year-old thinks they're holding on, but it's really the parent who's holding on to the child. And, and that's really good. He, he holds on to me when I have no strength to hold on. You see, Jesus died on a cross for our sins, even the sin of doubting his goodness, even the sin of, of questioning his sovereignty in my struggles. And he rose from the dead to give us a new life, a life with this promise that everything that happens to me serves as an advancement of the gospel. A life where his faithfulness turns my faithlessness into fruitful gospel living. That's incredible. I invite you to trust in him again today. For some of you, it may be the first time that you've ever really put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ because he promises a life where his faithfulness turns your faithlessness into a fruitful gospel life. You know, Paul suffered greatly for the gospel, more than you and I ever will, I imagine, yet he never lost hope. And you know why? Because he never lost sight of the heavenly vision as a persecutor of the church on the road to Damascus, he, Paul went to kill Christians, and on the way he met the risen and reigning Jesus, and he was changed. And instead of a murderer of Christians, he became God's chosen instrument to bring the gospel to the whole empire. And Paul not, never lost sight of that calling. Now, was it easy? No, it, it wasn't easy. He said, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we even despaired of life. That's what he says to the Corinthians. He said, indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. But this happened, listen now, this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That's the lesson. That's what God is drawing from us in our sanctification. It was never easy, beloved, but it was good and it was fruitful for the kingdom, a life of godless gospel purpose. Beloved, the, the pastures are lush and the barn is full and the pond is teeming with big old fish and, and the view, well, the, the view is incredible and you see the Father has invited us to come in and to eat in the big old house. You see, I want you to know that what's happened to me and what is happening to you has really served to advance the gospel and bring fame to the name of Jesus. Will you believe it? I hope so. For that, my friends, is the glorious grace of the gospel. Let's stand for prayer.
Our Father, we thank you once again for your word because it's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And we thank you that in the midst of whatever struggle we have, we know that you are working out our sanctification day by day. You're advancing the gospel in us and therefore teaching us to look up and to depend on Christ. And therefore, you're advancing the gospel in our life and the lives of others, Lord, as we learn to love others as ourselves, to love others as Christ has loved us. Would you do that work in us, Lord? Encourage us once again. And as we do, we'll give you the glory. And we pray it in Jesus' name.